Before we started today's episode, Matt and I wanted to remember Stan Lee, who, as you probably know, passed away earlier this week. While it's a little strange for me to eulogize someone I never met, uh, Stan Lee's reach and influence is impossible to argue against. Um, just the outpouring of stories, anecdotes, and just general mourning that we have seen throughout the uh, comic book community, fans, creators alike, uh, is speaks to the respect people held for Stan as well as the love they have for his legacy. I mean, even in my small town in Alabama, someone put out a billboard memorial for him just on the on the side of the road i mean we're about as far away from comic book country as you could get and even even still it's it's felt here there's not much else i wanted to say um just uh thank you stan and of course ditko for creating spider-man and for all the joy and entertainments we've had for the past however many decades, you will be missed. Hello, Internet. I'm Matthew Derrigish. And you're listening to the Untold Talks of Spider-Man. And you're listening to the Untold Talks of Spider-Man, a podcast about deep cuts, forgotten classics, and what it truly means to be a Spider-Man story. And here we are with our final episode on Like Sands in the Hourglass. Matt, what what is what is this story? This is December 2009's classic from a well-regarded era of Spider-Man comics. And this story is known as Kimia's Castle with the writer Fred Van Lente, the penciler and inker Javier Puldio, and colorist uh, Javier Rodriguez. Yes. We'd also like to uh, make a shout out to our greatest hater. Uh, for suggesting suggesting we cover this one. This one's for you, buddy. Um, and also, I think, happy birthday. I think you said that your birthday was going to be when we dropped this episode, or close enough to it. So, here you go. Birthday present from us. Um, Matt, why don't you tell everybody where we can find these issues? Ah, uh, this one's a pretty standard tale as far as availability. You know, go go read that on Marvel Unlimited. You can go grab it on Comixology for two bucks an issue across the two issues, which uh, is Amazing Spider-Man six fifteen and six sixteen. There is a hard-to-find hardback of the first volume of The Gauntlet, which includes this story. That seems to be going around $30, but if you get just the trade paperback, that seems to be going for more around, like, 5 bucks. The individual issues are clocking in a little over cover price, um, being a little over uh, $4 to being darn around $8.00 depending on condition where you nab that sucker. So, yes, uh, issues actually may be a little harder to grab than most of the stories we normally cover. But can, at, least, at least physical issues. Yeah, can you uh, give us a little context, a little build-up for where we're at in the Sandman saga after the oddity we left ourselves on? <laughs> well, you know, as, as you might have guessed from us saying that this was in the gauntlet, this is part of the uh, gauntlet kind of... Uh, 
era of Brand New Day, which was right at the tail end, uh, where we had a bold return for many of the classic Spider-Man villains and kind of like amping up their power set, giving them new reasons to once again grapple with their old sparring partner, Spidey. And uh, of course, all of this was let off by Deadpools, but we'll probably get into that in a little bit, you know, a later time. But... Um, so this new this block here kind of introduces a new status quo of Sandman. It's kind of like redefined his character. It pulls him a little bit more in line with maybe how we saw him in the movie. We kind of add this daughter character um, that was the idea that was kind of planted in that Spider-Man 3 movie. A lot of people saw that movie, so a lot of people... You know, might have had this this notion of Spider Man or this of Sandman in their head, but really we had not seen much of Flint Marco since that uh, last Peter Parker Spider Man story. I mean, he showed up in a handful of things, but I think really the only big land landmark issue was that uh, uh, friendly neighborhood Spider Man issue I keep referring to that where Peter David kind of fleshed out his background a little bit. Um, but no, no, this is this is kind of the big reintroduction after so you know after Brand New Day where we turn back the cl- the clock on Spider Man. Uh, we had nothing but new new villains up until the Gauntlet. Really was where we you know unless we kind of count Venom showing up and Norman Osborn. But Norman Osborn was kind of doing his Iron Man thing mm-hmm. at that point. So, yeah, really, this is the first time we've seen, like, the old Lee Ditko and Lee Ramita villains uh, pop back up. Yeah. Except for the Enforcers. The Enforcers showed up, I think, within the first handful of issues for a new day. (laughs) You know, whatever. Uh, One day we'll do a block just on the Enforcers. Everyone loves those guys, right? Who? I actually do like the Enforcers. (laughs) Anyway... Anything you wanted to add before we dive into this one? Oh, it's funny that you brought up the movie, because I have to be honest, when you're going through all these comics and whatnot, the movie never popped into my mind once. I just never thought about it. But you're right, that probably was a big factor uh, going into all this that I just simply hadn't considered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's... I'm I'm that bitter, cynical guy that's always like, oh yeah, of course we get an Electro story just when Amazing Spider-Man 2 comes out, which features the Electro. Yeah, well. Yeah, well, you know. If I get another Electro story, I'm all for it. Yeah, well, that one wasn't a very good one, but. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so this one, uh, Kimia's Castle. So it is a winter story, uh, despite the, the sandcastle imagery here, and we, it, it starts out, I mean, okay, first first off, how do you feel about uh, Javier Polito's uh, art? I, I, always, I always liked it. Uh, you know, I really liked him on Daredevil with Mark Wade, which I think was probably starting up around this time. I think it was a, maybe a year or two after this, but um, it has just like this dreamy quality and... I think I felt like that really fit in with those opening panels of Kimia just kind of like walking through like you know her her monologue or about you know her name being of Persian etymology and how Persia was a kingdom that doesn't exist anymore but she was in her own kingdom that did exist but it was it was very empty and barren and just kind of like the dreamy quality of both you know Javier's drawings and then a lot of like the the coloring of other Javier, um, you know, also really, really kind of helped that. It gave it like a, I keep saying dreamy, but like, yeah, like a dreamy look. No, that fits. I mean, we know this castle doesn't really exist in a certain way. It's really just the Sandman manifesting this for her. Mm-hmm. Use that word again. And yeah, no, the, I more so than any story we covered, I really feel the art made the story sing in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise. And honestly, I think is maybe the strongest entry for art in a comic f- across anything we've read. I thought this was incredibly delightful for that. And the way it was brought through, the facial expressions, everything, and some of the nods to past continuity that are played simply through the art that I mean, I didn't get to see the script. So I don't know if that was written in or if that was the artist knowing their Sandman. Well, really just brought something else to the table on this one that I I just 
spent more time looking at the panels, looking at some of the details on this, just because I was so enamored with how this was rendered. Yeah, I mean, Polito is a top-tier artist at Marvel, and I always try to pick up a book if if I see him attached to it. So, um, I'm, you know, I, I agree with that completely. Um, so I'm glad we're both both in step there. But, um, yeah, so, so I probably should have covered this in the context a little bit, but uh, since this is in a peculiar era of Spider-Man history, so... Jonah is the mayor. Peter is kind of like working in his PR department, uh, sort of. And um, the Daily Bugle was recently destroyed. It was, you know, as part of the beginning of Brand New Day, it was sold off to Bennett's. I can't remember his first name. Um, it probably started with a D. <laughs> and they changed it to the DB, which was more of like a celebrity rag than a newspaper. And the previous story to this, Electro destroyed it. And there was a lot of hullabaloo. And so there's pressure on NYPD to kind of tie this up and suddenly something in evidence gets pulled out and there's a big scramble that if word gets out that you know the forensics investigations labs were tampered with there's going to be a whole bunch of lawyers going out for mistrials so they're trying to keep that under wraps which requires peter because he's working in the mayor's office to kind of throw his new girlfriend carly cooper under the bus since she's she's kind of like the uh the greenhorn in the forensics lab and so of course the buck gets passed on to her because she's the most expendable right right so that, that that's kind of the setup for this issue as far as like the peter parker side is which i don't know i honestly that part i know it plays more to the gauntlet what's going on but i i was so laser focused on the sandman story here that I, you know, I read those parts, whatnot, but it's kind of continuing some stuff that had been building. It doesn't really pay off till later, and I was just focusing on right. Our, our well, it's 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 important to know like going into the story, so you're not pulled out of it by by that stuff going on. But yeah, it does not it doesn't really play into the narrative of these two these two comics uh, extensively. It, it it plays more into how it fits in with the rest of the the comic or. I'm sorry, the rest of the continuity. But from Carly Cooper, we learned that there were three murders, one of which we know is uh, Kimia's mother. Uh, we have a lawyer, Kimia's mother, and then a concert promoter. And we, we well, we don't know that it's Kimia's mother until the next panel where Spider-Man, or page, where Spider-Man swings by a missing person's uh, poster and we we find out that Kimia's last name is the same as the one of the murder victims and that that's really where the the two inter interconnect and the story really starts so the the implication is that Sandman has murdered Kimia's mother and then kidnapped the daughter to kind of live out this weird fantasy of his of like having a family and then we very quickly learn that uh, that Mother Kimia, um, Alma, had some some skeletons in her closet where, let's see, uh, Spider-Man swings into her, her home, you know, just a, a little casual breaking and entering uh, to kind of uncover some clues and kind of see what was going on. And then he finds that her dresser uh, is covered in various pictures of villains. I mean, we got we got all sorts of people on here. We've got Fancy Dan, the Beetle, the Wizard, uh, Molten Man, you know, the Sinister Six, even wait, wait, Mole wait. Man. Just because Dan hasn't showed up on our podcast, we don't have to call him a villain, Kate. <laughs> No, no, I'm talking about the Enforcer, Fancy Dan. Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry, I thought you said Dapper Dan for a second. I, I'm with you now. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, man, I, I just looked at, there's a very small picture of D-Man. So, really, really going for them Z-listers. No, that's um, D-list, clearly. Come on, man. God. Anyway, anyway, so so the idea is that Alma, Alma has, like, these relationships with super villains um 
Spider-Man notes that he saw a segment on this on 60 Minutes where people like are flocked to these people pretty soon after uh, the Abuela um, shows up. Kimia's grandmother mentions that uh, Alma had this thing for jailbirds and like felt like it made her life exciting. So we, we now see like like the connections are starting to get made. Like the web is starting to weave itself, if I can use that metaphor on a Spider-Man podcast, uh, where, we, we, you know, the idea is that, you know, that Alma might have written about Kimia in these letters to, to Flint Marco because uh, Spider-Man does uncover a, a picture of Sandman grouped with what appears to be maybe a bunch of letters and so, you know, we, we kind of move in, we move in, we, we find out that things went south between Alma and Sandman and that perhaps, and, and that she was trying to get a uh, restraining order put out on him. And that's why the lawyer was killed. So the last piece of the puzzle is to figure out what was going on with this concert promoter and how he fits into this. And so for that, Spider-Man goes and visits Betty Brant, who looks strangely Asian. Um, did you did you pick that up? I think it's it was just kind of the rendering, but I didn't think too much of it. But okay. now that you say it, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, I do want to point out this amazing picture of J. John Jameson shaking hands with this concert promoter, and uh, he's like. The, the the concert promoter is is black so the the implication from this picture is that he's he's promoting like hip hop artists and whatever because cuz JJ J is wearing a giant gold chain with like JJJ printed out in block letters and uh like a kanga cap or like a knockoff thereof and it's just a ridiculous picture. I love it. It's it's the hamburger eating scene of this comic, uh, <laughs> even if it's just like a little like one off. But I always love pointing those out when we come across them. Just like the 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 goofy the goofy kind of like weird panels. But anyway, um, so so we do that uh, from from Betty. Uh, Spider Man learns that this concert promoter had the ownership of this island's kind of landmass is what they uh what he says called uh governor's island which used to be an army base and now is kind of abandoned and the concert promoter's idea was to kind of turn it into a venue and so now you know with all the pieces put together spider-man shows up at the uh at the governor's island and of course sandman is there and they start to tussle uh and you know th this is the first fight of two in this story and I, I just i really love the way uh polito uh draws the sandman and like like he, like so sandman like launches himself at spider-man but instead of just like launching himself he forms like sand ram horns on his head and just kind of like torpedo dives at him and then of course like spider-man jumps out of the way but then like sandman just forms like a fist out of his back and punches punches him that way and it's just like cool and like visually interesting uh yeah. like a great way to draw like the sandman fight in a way that we haven't really seen in any of these issues i mean like yeah he'll make like the big hammer he'll make the big like spike ball but we we never really see kind of like a amorphous blob kind of like ever shifting you know like like all-encompassing attack kind of thing have we i mean maybe it's been alluded to in different but i i feel like we have someone who's a master of the comic book form here and so we're getting sandman visually attacking spider-man in a way that works which ends up playing more like green lantern than it does like venom i guess i want to say yeah where like you're, you're getting this you know he's forming these different things to attack him so you have a visual communication of what it's supposed to be and i know like the sledgehammer is supposed to kind of be that but that's so kind of just a block it's not very interesting but like that ram horn you're right like that's so interesting and it's there and i've never seen that before and that just took me back or like you said the hand like they, the big fist is just the big fist but the fact that it shot out of its back just felt like 
a cool way to do that. And so we're getting all these cool, crazy, inventive things in the fight that just makes it so much more interesting. It really tells, like, how scary it is to deal with the Sandman in a way that it wouldn't be to deal with many of the other villains, because you have this stuff coming. But it's done in a way that it's still just fun and exciting to read. It doesn't feel like, I don't know, unlike the other stuff we've covered recently, it doesn't feel like body horror. It feels like Sandman the supervillain. Right. And so, and then this is, this is where we kind of learn that like, you know, through banter and, and questioning while they fight, you know, like, like a superhero is wont to do, you know, we, we find out that like Sandman has like a devotion to this girl, like, uh spider-man asks like you know all i care about is the girl like where is she what you know what is she to you and Sp like he he screams like she's everything and just like jettisons spider-man out the window which we've talked about before and then we that's we also learn that sandman doesn't know that her mother's been murdered and accuses spider-man of just trying to pin that on him uh which kind of you know calls back to why he left the avengers is like this you know feeling of distrust that like anytime something bad happens that like he gets the blame is pinned on him because he's he's a bad guy which you know and then that leads to our, our final big spread that ends ends this issue of the Sandman saying that he's learned his new some new tricks and he seemingly split himself up into so many different you know personas and personalities like you know sort of like multiple man but instead of being perfect copies we've got like gangly Sandman we've got like dapper Sandman we got fat Sandman we got short Sandman we got the weird 70s costume Sandman where he's got like the upside down T on his head and like the shoulder pauldrons and we even got like some like wide-hipped Sandman, and uh, it's just a whole bunch of different Sandmans, uh, which is, you know, what's alluded to on the cover for the next issue, which is a whole bunch of different Sandmans. Yeah, and so in those all those different Sandmans, what I found really interesting is there's definitely some nods to Ditko in there, mm -hmm. especially the one with, you know, like, the hat man that is Ditko's, like, default character. Right. Uh, and a couple of the other, like, like one looks distinctly more, like, uh, Ditko's design for Sandman than what we're getting rendered throughout most of the story. And I think there's one that's a bit more like Romita. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting also in that is that he's manifesting all these different Sandman, very similarly to that other story we talked about where Sandman was having all these different personalities and coming through. And I don't know if that was an intentional nod to that story or playing off that, but it, it felt like the idea that he control all these things would be the new trick but it's still giving a little nod to that story and interestingly a lot of the Sandman stories we've talked about have some aspect pulled through in this story like the things story with, with that brawl where it ends up being right it doesn't necessarily go that way and I mean they do end up actually fighting but this this idea that they're fighting over something that's right and you write that guilt like from the Avengers bit or whatnot. It's Sandman trying to do something right, not in the best way, and he thinks he's the best one. It's completely ego-driven, but his motivations are pretty pure, and at the end of the day, like it was before, I think we walk away relating to Sandman maybe a bit more than Spider-Man, and uh, we'll get to that, but where this story ends is so murky. Right. I, I don't think Sandman was doing completely the wrong thing. Well, what he was doing was he he kidnaps Kimia and you know he he tells Kimia he's going to bring bring her, her mother and her grandmother but the idea is that like he and Alma had a falling out and he kept trying to be there presumably for Kimia but Alma didn't want him to be there so she got the restraining order so in the face of that he just kidnaps Kimia well, he doesn't well, yeah. strictly kidnap. So Kimia is sent off to be with her grandmother for a moment. And the grandmother is just absent-minded and lets her wander off. And Sandman basically directs her to this uh, island where he can take care of her and not bother anyone else. And she can be treated like a princess, which is where you're getting Kimia's bit about, you know, being the princess, having this castle, having everything brought to her. 
And uh, there's this big bit about how Sandman's able to use some tunnels so he doesn't have to deal with the water so he can go get food for her and things like that. And so it's all set up so he can be whatever she wants or needs. Right. And so, like, yeah, he has the best intentions at heart. But, like, I mean, he's still someone who ripped a child away from her family. Um, Right. Right. But the family, like, yeah, he did. But also, well... Right. Well, I, I mean, I get... we we don't really see what her home life was before this. All, all we know, all we know, is that her grandmother was like, "Yeah, it's three kids. They're they're out that they're out playing in the snow. I'm just gonna watch TV. There are three of them. Nothing bad's gonna happen. Spoiler: something bad happens. But like, so we don't really know what her home life was or what her relationship is with her mother, other than it seems to be positive because she keeps asking like, "When when's my mom? When's Abuela gonna come?" Like. You know, I, I want I want all of us to be here as, as a family, and so it's 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 a selfish part. It's 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 a selfish move on his part because I I don't I think you can read it that way, but I mean, well, the the whole reason he kidnaps her is because his visitation rights were being terminated. You know, because she was getting a restraining order on him, so he he couldn't see Kimia anymore. Right. Well, it's a broken family thing, but I, we are dancing around this, so I'm just going to bring it up here. The ending of this story is when Kimia is brought back and Spider-Man brings her back, she's put into the foster care system and they know it's a bad churn and Spider-Man feels bad about it. Mm -hmm. And he kind of questions what he does. Like he knows he shouldn't have left her as Sandman necessarily, but is this really any better? And the other thing you have to remember too is like by society's rules, she's not supposed to be with her grandmother and she can't be with her mother anyways. So like she's just going to go to another family anyways and you know... I don't know if we're going with Flip Marco anymore, but (laughs) he wanted to take care of her and just being in the foster care system sucks. And you have to remember, Spider-Man and Sandman are characters that do play outside of societal roles. You know, they do what they think is right based on the situation, not necessarily what's legal. And so... I don't know. I, I the the ending of this is supposed to make you think about it, and I think saying that there's a definitive answer is kind of missing the heart of the story. That this is just a damn messy situation, and when a kid's initial family dies, it's just a bad situation that usually leaves stuff with no good answers. Right, and like I mean, yeah, for sure, this this story does not leave Spider-Man looking great. Like, you know, he. He he gets he gets captured by Sandman in the last issue, and he's held prisoner. And he kind of tricks Kimia into letting him go, and then realizes that Sandman is reflexively lashing out at Spider Man. But in order to do, and he's doing that in order to protect Kimia. So he uses her as a shield, and like. Mm-hmm. Like, what it says is that, like, he wouldn't let her be hurt, would you? Or you wouldn't let her be hurt, would you? Like, he's thinking this. And he says, let's test that. And just launches himself with her, like, head out in front of him, directly at a wall. Yeah. And, like... Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's, like, he, Spider-Man just that, used a rich child as a human shield, and we just glaze <laughs> past that. Like, it's, it's abhorrent. Um... <laughs> I mean, it's bad, but it's also, like, he's not sure, but he's sure that that's not going to happen. Also, arguably, Spider-Man says the reflexes so that if the wall isn't going to start giving way, he can, you know, right. it's, keep anything bad from happening it's, it's to still her. Put, but, it still put a bad taste in my mouth. Um, oh, no, it, it should. It definitely should. Because that is, that is a pretty dark moment, and it's not really thought of in the story. Like, you could tell that it was kind of glazed over, like you said. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's the thing is everybody wants to do what's right for the kid, but it's more like they're moralizing than actually addressing or dealing with the kid. Right. And so, you know, Sandman gives chase and splits off into all these, you know, multiple, multiple personas. And that that's where we, we realize or where it's revealed that like, well, Sandman thinks he's in control of all these different bodies. But as it turns out, these, some of these, some of these people like their their personalities are not all uniform. Some some are a little bit more different than others. 
and some seem to be more more in tune with like the evil side of Sandman because you've got these three that admit that they murdered you know Kimia's mother, the lawyer, and the concert promoter, and then you have other other aspects or personalities of Sandman that seem shocked that they would do this. So so there's there's an idea that yes, yeah, Sandman might not have this new trick he's quote-unquote learned completely under control, but also that, like, there's still some good in this guy. I mean, we're we're no longer... I mean, at, at this point, referencing his time as Avenger is more or less dead continuity. I mean, it happened, but mm-hmm. I, I think for all intents and purposes, it's getting retconned via obscurity rather than any any particular, like, spoken word. Right. And so it... And at this point, all the members of the Avengers are different anyways, so none of them would remember, so it doesn't really <laughs> matter anyways. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. We, the, the, the Heroes Reborn action. <laughs> oh, we're at, like, new Avengers at this point. Oh, oh okay, well, yeah. I, I, yeah, anyway, anyway, yeah, you, you're right, you're right, we are. So, yeah, yeah, so, like, like you said, eventually, you know, Spider-Man gets out, he, he escapes... And um, Sandman asks him, he says he's the only one who's ever treated Kimia like a father. And, you know, he, he sent her letters as often as he could. He said that Kimia looks at, looks at him like a father and like on her own started calling him, you know, dad. And it really, it really, it meant something to him. It, it felt like, it felt like he had a part of, a part of life that he didn't have. And he was just, this whole story is him desperately trying to cling on to that. Even, even in the face of his mother, or I'm sorry, her mother telling, you know, telling him that she doesn't want him in her life anymore. There, there we we'll get like a few good back and forths here, but like ultimately, yeah, like, like you said, it, it ends with the protect, uh, the, you know, the child services person saying that because, this hap- this whole kidnapping incident happened because of uh Kimia's grandmother's negligence. She's not fit to be uh you know, to be Kimia's guardian, so she's become a ward of the state and just going to, you know, go to a foster home. And we almost get like the super villain origin of Kimia here. I mean, she's just a child, so clearly that's not gonna happen, but we she kind of retreads on her opening monologue about, you know, her her kingdom and you know her persian roots and then we get this kind of like make-believe final splash page of her sitting on a cra- on a throne of sand next to next to uh sandman who's kind of like looking down and smiling and her playing with little like sandman action figures uh, but yeah, it's a downer ending because, like, again, just like last issue, Spider-Man loses. He, I mean, he he beats Sandman. He gets the girl, but it didn't turn out well for her. And and it, it's not in part due to Spider-Man's actions. Like, yeah, she shouldn't. You know, he can't just let this kidnapped girl live with the guy who killed her mother and you know all that stuff. But. It's just, it's an unfortunate situation with no good ending. And I mean, and it's, it's, a, it's, it pulls off that downer ending well, uh, partially because of, again, like these dreamy colors really clash in, in like a good way with just the, the, the depressing nature of the ending. And what's interesting too is, after this, we see Kimia mentioned in a couple of comics, uh, once during Ends of the Earth when they're dealing with Sandman, and then again in a random Moon Knight comic where Moon Knight and Spider-Man team up to take on Sandman, she's basically just mentioned. But then she quickly becomes kind of forgotten continuity, as, you know, as we saw recently with the Zdarsky comic, you know, Sandman's just kind of doing his own interdimensional thing. Yeah, um... And this kind of drop, but in a weird way, I think it informs him going forward because this makes him, compared to the body horror phase we were in, more of a humanistic character. But now we're grappling with so many different points of this villain that he's really had so many sides. It's uh, interesting. You're, you're right. It's it feels like having her continue to be in continuity and have appearances and, and like a relationship with Sandman would kind of punch punch the effect of this ending down a little bit 
where you see her do have like her her quote unquote happy ending where she gets to be with Sandman like she wants to be and Sandman gets to be with her like he wants to be. So yeah, it kind of leaves her in kind of like a limbo state where they I mean to to make her show up and more stories would kind of rob this story of its ending, which they've never really had problems with doing in the past. So I wouldn't be surprised if she does eventually show up again as like the villain in Runaways or something. Um, <laughs> which going strong. I don't know if you're reading it, but Runaways is doing great right now. It's it's been a fantastic read. But we're not talking about Runaways here. We're talking about Sandman and Spider Man. So uh, I, I guess. This one, uh, how, how do you feel about this one as, as Spider-Man's story? Like, I mean, this this feels squarely within, you know, what they were going with at this time with both Brand New Day and and the Gauntlet. Like, it's a solid back to, not, not, not necessarily back to basics, but we've, we've divorced Sandman from all of this Avengers stuff and, like, his history with Silver Sable and the Thing. And, you know, likewise with Spider-Man, we've really simplified and streamlined his personal life. And this is just two foes coming at each other within the, the bounds of the story rather than with carrying all this weight from their previous continuity as well. How do you feel about it? I mean, I think it's interesting. As far as it being a Spider-Man story, I think that gut punch at the end was maybe the biggest part. Because with the gauntlet, you know, there's a lot more physicality and wearing spider-man down but this is maybe the biggest emotional maybe not the biggest but this is a emotional punch in a way that's so different than the rest because it, it feels kind of out of bounds of where these things normally have gone and man i th there's a line when spider-man's talking around this with charlie at the end where she's relating it to um somewhere in her family and she says this bit about, you know, at the end of the day, it's up to you to decide if you did the right thing and if you were the hero, because there was no one else there to make the judgment. Mm. And you have to know what you did was right and move on or recognize it, basically, and not. And it kind of made me think, like, there's so many times where Spider-Man, yeah, is about the only person in the room doing what he thinks is right. And the only real judgment or barometer of what he's doing or how he's acting is pretty much him and it's kind of funny looking at a lot of these stories that we've had recently there's a lot of pushback on that and it kind of makes you question like you know spider-man's really trying to do the right thing but maybe he could use some review because maybe it's not the best even though his intentions are right and he's pulling through the actions you probably think you should he doesn't always have the most nuanced view so okay uh, interesting i don't know what you thought about that whole bit in the ending there uh, after the consequences i mean <sighs> Uh, I mean, like, I, I feel like I've already kind of said, you know, my, my feelings on it about how it's just, it's, it's, it's an ending that had no, no way it could be a happy ending. And I felt like it was, it was pulled off well by the, the creatives here, you know, as far as, as what it says about like Spider-Man in a larger sense, I, I, I don't really know if the story had that kind of ambition, um, you know, or, or anything. I, I think it was just really just trying to tell like a tight clean story uh, about these two characters and i think it pulled that off well i i you know i don't know if there's anything i, I could further ex extrapolate from there uh as as far as spider-man needing like review or you know uh, someone else to help him with his 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 moralizing uh I mean, I feel like that's just, that's part of the character is the angst of knowing, like, am I doing the right thing? Like, am I doing the right thing swinging out right now instead of taking uh, taking uh, time to make sure my personal obligations are being met? Like, am I doing the right thing by helping out Kurt Connors? Am I, you know, th that sort of thing. And so I feel like that's always been a part of the character is is doing the right thing but always kind of second guessing like was what i did the right thing yeah you're totally right and that's totally what makes it spider felt spider-man mm -hmm. to me after everything yeah all right so reissued or untold but this one has to be reissued this is i think a fan favorite sandman story so it's hard to go the other way on that all right one. well now you're gonna make me feel like a jerk <laughs> 
Because I was going to say, like, as far as Sandman stories go, like, yeah, this was a good one, but, like, I don't know. Uh, if you want, like, a good one-and-done Sandman story that's not about him knocking over a bank or something, um, sure, this one. But, like, I, I don't know. Just after reading all those different uh, Sandman stories and seeing, like, all the nuance and how, like, the continuity helps build them, I just, I can't, I can't help but feel like if you're looking for a Sandman story, like, there are other options. I, I guess if you're looking for a modern one, yeah, this would be the one I would point you to. But yeah, so I'd be leaning more on Untold for this one, uh, not necessarily because of the quality, but just just how it how it tracks as a Sandman story in the greater collection of these. But all right, so onto the list. Where does it fall? We've got. Mm, I'm gonna put this one. I, I would say this this one clears the pumping up bar. So that this this clears <laughs> clears our like good old spider-man story and you know lands among the stars of great spider-man stories i would put this one below asm 281 which was the sandman silver sable team up uh and above identity crisis yeah i i could see it there part of it is i just feel the art so strong but yeah no i see i mean there's something about that uh sandman silver sable team up issue that just hit me as like something special and how standard comic book he was but how much was going on and how much it really colored about the comic right well i mean it, it's i mean that was tom defalco uh, arguably at the top of his game uh, you know ron friends only did the storyboarding on that one but you could you could also feel his you know his hands there uh i believe um oh shoot what's his name uh brett or brent i can't call the last name i believe he was a constant or not constant but like a frequent fill-in artist for when friends wasn't doing pencils uh during that era so like i i feel like that was a team that really worked well together and so yeah they were able to pull off a lot of magic and yeah that's not to say that polito polito's art wasn't up to snuff or like wasn't up to to those levels but like it I felt like it wasn't married to the story as well as as that 281 story was. Gotcha. All right. Well, there it is. Okay. Well, before we move on, I just so we finished out all the Sandman stuff. We we, we are done. We we've done what six Sandman stories now? Five, six. When we started this, you said that you didn't really like Sandman that much, and you felt like he was an overwrought character. I just, I want to know, like, has your opinion changed or, or, or like, how, how do you look at it now? Because, I mean, like, I, I like, I like him. I still like him. I, I, I want to know how, how you feel about him now. Yeah, it's definitely changed because, I mean, most of what Sandman I read before was his presence in the Sinister Six or, like, him at the ends of the Earth, which is basically him in the Sinister mm. Six again. And him being this, like, powerhouse, but too dull to really take advantage of his abilities, which seems crazy, considering his abilities are so out there, like, should be able to punch a little above that weight. <laughs> uh, but going through this, seeing more, like, the body horror, the personal struggler, the fact that he was trying to be a hero, and that wasn't just kind of a, we're picking this villain for it, but there's a bit more of a through line mm -hmm. for it. I it's made him a more interesting character, but it's also c kind of brought him down in a different way in my eyes because it feels like we start off stories where we're taking this Sandman or that Sandman, and he feels like a much more inconsistent character to me now. Right? No, I I, I follow you there, especially since you know after you know the 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 kind of the heel turn <laughs> the characterization's been a little off and is he's never really had like a big reestablishment kind of story i guess kimia's castle might have been that but he's he hasn't really been a big player in the same way that as he was in like the 90s when or the late 80s and, and 90s when he was doing you know the hero stuff with silver sable or where we got uh, kind of a mini arc with him woven through peter parker spider-man so i i can see the complaint about inconsistency i i would love to see another character or another uh writer kind of pick him up and and see what they can do with the character again or or maybe or maybe it's time to just kind of like let sandman be sandman and try that with somebody else 
you know, try try to add a little bit more nuance to another Spidey villain, which maybe that's what we're getting with Boomerang right now. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's that's. I'm glad to hear that mission accomplished. I I spread the word of Sandman. People people understand why I'm like, yeah, Sandman. He's really cool. No, I don't. I don't mean. I don't mean in Spider-Man Three. <laughs> All right. Well, next up is our winter slash holiday theme block of episodes. Uh, this block we're calling Snow Day. So each one of these issues is going to deal with snow. It is always been a thing with spider-man you know i mean we saw it in this this issue where he's web swinging he's bundled up he's got the little toboggan he's got the scarf he's up there high he's moving fast he's in a skin tight leotard i mean it's gonna get chilly anyway first up on this is going to be spectacular spider-man number 112 you never make a sound after that, we're going to be moving on to the Clone Saga. That's right. We're back in the 90s. <laughs> that one, we're going to be covering the story called it's Media Blizzard, which is a crossover that starts with Sensational Spider-Man number one. So Ben Riley, then moves on to Amazing Spider-Man number 408 and then ends with Spider-Man number 65. After that, we're going to be jumping back to the brand new day and covering Amazing Spider-Man 555 and 556, titled Sometimes It Snows in April. And then we're going to head over to Forest Hills for Spectacular Spider-Man number 173 through 175, Creatures Stirring. And then to close out the block with Tangled Web of Spider-Man number 21, Twas the Fight Before Christmas. So, again, that's Spectacular Spider-Man 112, then the crossover of Sensational Spider-Man 1, Amazing Spider-Man 408, and Spider-Man 65, then Amazing Spider-Man 55 through 56, Spectacular 173 through 175, and then ending with Tangled Web 21. Yeah, so we'll also be, you know, we'll we'll put that out on Twitter on a list so you can, you know, more easily either fish them out, start looking for them, ordering them, read them on on unlimited, completely ignore it, just go in, go in completely blind, whichever one you want to do, but we'll we'll make it easy for you guys. All right. Huh. So, Kane so Matt, have you been reunited with any of your childhood comics lately? Yes, actually, I uncovered a whole bunch of my old Shonen Jump uh, comics and old manga, and immediately turned around and sold them all. How much you get? Like Forty five dollars. Nice. Eh, yeah. Well, like I, as as the guy said, he's like, yeah, you got a lot of it, but like I can't really move this stuff very well. No one's really buying manga down here. I was like, I understand that. So I actually I sold the the comics and everything for like I think fifteen dollars, but then I went next door to like the used game shops and sold them a bunch of back issues of Nintendo Power for. Like, they took, like, a dollar an issue, which I was floored by. Like, who wants... And like, these were not in good condition. These were in awful condition. But anyway, so, out there, if you guys got any old back issues in Nintendo Power, apparently there's a market for them. So, um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> what, what were you saying? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, if you guys want to hear more hidden tales of finding bits of your old collection, uh... <laughs> Mark from our brother podcast across the way of the Amazing Spider Talk was recently reunited with his Amazing 300. And there's quite a bit of a tale, so you guys should uh, hop on the Patreon feed and check that out. Patreon feed? You mean I have to fork over a whole bunch of money, like untold riches, to listen to that? The Spider-Man Beatotter reviews and Amazing Spider Talks, uh, Amazing Spider-Man reviews? I'm not made of money, Matt. You aren't made of money? Are you made of sand? Yes. Then you can just fork over change and buy those Oranges of Patreon episodes, and then they will evaporate away, and you will be all the richer with all the information you get. Well, how much money am I going to have to fork over? I would say somewhere around, like, four bucks would be a good place to wow, start. Wow, that's cheaper than a new comic. Oh, wow. You're right. <laughs> For that, I might as well spend $10 and get 
commission artwork from Spider-Man artists twice a year, or even twenty dollars, and then get that uh, that commissioned artwork colored. Why you should do just that, Kate? Maybe I just want to drop down a dollar so that I can talk in the VIP ch- uh, channel of the Slack community. Who knows? But with all these options, I know that there's a way I can get as much spider talk or as little spider talk as I want. We should script these. We probably (laughs) should. I mean, I have a script. We just went way off. (laughs) All right. Okay. So, special thanks to the Ellie Badge for our theme song. You should listen to it again and again by hitting, you know, reload on this episode. You know, I mean, you could even set up a whole bunch of computers that are all listening to these constantly, on a loop, in a playlist even. Um, may- maybe if we ever get it on YouTube so we get them sweet, sweet YouTube bucks. But um, anyway, yeah, yeah. You can listen to our theme song as much as you want. Or if you want to hear the other songs by the Ellie Badge, they've got links aplenty in the show notes. Cool. So until Kane sequesters me into a sand prison, manifesting my every want and need, make mine untold. I don't know if I want to manifest your every want and need. <laughs> I've talked to you drunk. <laughs> <laughs> He's gone. Assuming he was ever here. Breaking news. The notorious Sandman has been spotted attacking an oil tanker at Rockaway Beach. We'll have more on the hour. In the meantime, here's an oldie but a goodie from the Cordettes. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Give him tulips like roses and clover. Then tell him that his lonesome nights are Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Give him the word that I'm not a rover. Then tell him that his lonesome nights are over. Sandman, I'm so alone. Don't have nobody to call my own. Please turn on your magic feet. Sandman. Yes? Bring us a dream. Give him a pair of eyes with a come-hither gleam. Give him a lonely heart like Pollyachie. And lots of wavy hair like Lee.